We're starting this new series called, called Tough Questions, where we're going to explore some big questions together. We're going to spend the next couple of months doing this. And today the question is, how can Christianity be the one and only way, speaking to the idea of exclusivity and pluralism? Now, we are in an interesting cultural moment where we have certain phrases that maybe we use or other people use that, that shape what we think and how we live. Phrases like this, live your truth, be true to yourself. Now, it's interesting about the English language, and I am a nerd when it comes to language. Specifically, I love to understand where do things come from? Like we have certain things we say all the time and you're like, what, is that? what does that mean? There's certain things that each of us say that you don't know. What is the background of it? Well, this idea of being true to yourself, where does that come from? Now, I'm gonna guess that not many of us are, are really, really familiar with all of Shakespeare's works in extreme detail. But this idea of being true to yourself actually comes from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. Now, some of us that it's been a while since we've been in English class are like, I don't even remember any of Hamlet. I think there was a murder or something. <laughs> and so it comes from Hamlet. So here's this phrase that we use all the time that, that Shakespeare wrote. Now, it causes us to wonder, okay, so wait, who, who said the words? He said, to thine own self be true. Who, who said those words? They were uttered by Polonius. Now, again, I'm willing to bet that you're hearing Polonius, and it sounds like a Shakespeare person, but you're like, ah, I don't remember. Okay, Polonius was both a villain and a fool. Okay, so here we have words that are shaping culture, words that we live by, uttered in fiction by a fool. It's interesting, isn't it? It's helpful for us to understand that. that that's, this has become a cultural value. And it's important for us to understand, regardless of what we believe, whether we believe in Christianity or not, that the words that we say shape what we believe and shape our lives and who we become. Our words have significant power. That when we say certain things, it shapes how we see things, our perspective that we have, and it shapes then who we become. And so this idea of cultural reframing around truth, be true to your own self, live your own truth, has shaped us and formed us, has it shaped us for the better? We live in a culture that has developed an increasingly complicated relationship with truth. Used to be that there were things that were true and things that were not true, and now it's a little murkier. It's a little bit more unclear. In fact, there are words like post-truth that were developed and added to the dictionary for this. In fact, in 2016, post-truth became the word of the year. The word of the year, post-truth. Now, what is that? How's that defined, post-truth? Post-truth is defined like this. Relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. So post-truth 
is when we shape what we believe or we shape how we see things based on our, our emotions and beliefs rather than facts. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And we see it shaping the world all around us. And so this idea leads to statements like, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. There is no real truth. The problem is that those statements are statements of truth. Like the truth is there's no such thing as truth. And you're like, that was a truth. And you're like, you know what? Let's not bog ourselves down with logic. Let's just, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And you're like, but that can't be true. And you're like, well, let's just move on, okay? Let's just post things on Instagram and then we'll be good, right? Good, perfect. It causes us to reflect, what is that? What's at the core of that? For some of us, it's become really confusing, you're like, what do I do with this? People are, are some of them seem just like out in left field and I, and I find myself struggling. What does it look like to actually live like this as a Jesus follower? And what happens is when truth becomes this thing that no one can really define, it becomes shaped and, and malleable, formed by people that want to use it to communicate a certain thing, to manipulate, to sell, and so we find this environment incredibly challenging. People will use truth to suit them at certain times, then at others disregard reality. And it's important for us to understand that truth is about reality. Life as it is, not life as it could be. Life as we wish it was. Truth is reality as it is. But it's really important for us to understand how the idea of truth has been redefined by the culture that is around us, the culture that we find ourselves in. It's important that we understand that the idea of truth has become this more nebulous gray thing. And it's important for those of us that are Jesus followers because sometimes we don't pay attention to the world that we're around now, this can mean that we're set apart, and that's a good thing, but sometimes we become so set apart that we forget that some of the questions that we're answering or the things that we're wrestling with, no one else is. It's important for us to understand the environment that we are in as we have conversations with people that don't yet know Jesus. But it's also really important for us to understand the culture that we are in because I think sometimes we, we don't pay attention to how much it shapes us. I don't think we pay attention to how it forms us. And even as we're reading our Bible, how it puts lenses and filters on us and suddenly we're reading it in a different way. This idea of truth or post-truth, it has shaped and reframed issues of faith and religion for much of the culture that is around us. And so it causes people to say things like this. We all worship God in our own different ways. Or... All religions serve the same God. But is that true? Is that reality? That's what we want to spend some time actually looking at. We all, the idea, we all worship God in our own different ways, and all religions serve the same God. Now, let me just add one caveat, caveat to today and to this series as a whole from a pastoral perspective. So as someone who is responsible for shepherding, for teaching, for, for leading, my heart is not to develop a bunch of argumentative Christians that go and debate people. 
I've done that. I've been there. It did not work very well for me to convince people that God loved them when I would just trash them with my words. My heart is not for you to hop on Facebook or Instagram after and just start posting things going, I'm going to make some point. There's value in us having sometimes intense conversations with people that don't think like us. But those should always be from a place of relational equity. Like we should have some sense of trust with that person. They actually want to know what we think. And maybe there will be some pushback, but at least there's enough relationship that it can handle some of the difficult things. My heart for those of us as a Christian is not on the other side where we just avoid anything. We're like, you know what, that's difficult, so I'll just, I'll just live over here and, and pretend like that doesn't exist. Instead, what I want us to do is to develop a more winsome witness. That is, as we witness to what Jesus has done in our life, as we witness to the good news of Jesus, that we do it in a winsome way, that it is compelling, that it draws people in, that they understand that the narrative of Jesus is different than the narrative of the world. My heart is that we as a church would navigate those things and so that we would, we would be strengthened in our beliefs and that other people would understand what we believe. Maybe you're in the room and you're like, I don't know if I believe in any of this. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you're in here and you go, I, I want to be strengthened or I want to understand or I'm not really sure. And again, we're glad that you are here. For those of us who would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, I want us to pay careful attention on a regular basis on how we're being formed. We use that language, we talk about it a lot, but more specifically, I want to look at how we're deformed. That is how the world shapes us and forms us into a way that does not look like Jesus. And we look at our lives and all the things that we take in, all the content shapes us, all the words that we believe, all the things that we do, it, it shapes and forms us into a person. And for those of us who call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, ultimately we want that person to be Jesus. We want to be shaped and formed into his image, looking more and more like him. When we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, that people are around us and go, he seems or she seems like someone who has walked with Jesus. But so often all the other noise around us, it shapes us and it deforms us. And so some of the work increasingly of the church is counterformation. So if we're being formed by other voices, we want to look at Jesus who forms us, counterforms us into his image. And so I want to look at this, I want to look at this, this question from a few different angles. First, let's explore the claims in those two statements that I read. We all worship God in our own different way, and all religions serve the same God. Maybe you've said it, maybe you've heard it. We all worship God in our own different ways, and all religions serve the same God. Now let's take a moment and let's actually explore some differences between Christianity and all the other religions. Now again, I'm going, I'm going on some really key things. There's lots of details. I'm gonna hit and highlight a couple of things. First, Christianity is the only faith that believes in the Trinity. One God, three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christianity believes in the Trinity. I'm even rocking my triangle necklace, the, the symbol, the, tr the Trinity. Triune God. We, this is a central part of what we believe as Orthodox Christians, holding historical Christianity at the center, the Trinity. And so in Islam, Islam believes that there is one God, one God, but not triune, not Trinity. 
And the same with Mormons. The Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. So, all religions serve the same God. We all worship God in our own different ways. Is Islam and Mormonism just another way to God? Well, here we find ourselves in a dichotomy. We have two options. Either God is singular or God is triune. It's not one of those things where we go, well, he's, yeah, he's singular and kind of triune because one group says, no, he can't be triune. He can't be a trinity. And we go, no, he's the trinity and he can't just be by himself. Otherwise, what do we do with Jesus? An orthodoxy in Christian belief, historical Christian belief, believes that he is triune, that he is Trinity, Trinitarian. This is a central part of our belief as Christians. So, can Islam or Mormonism lead you to salvation in God? No. And so we can say it in our minds, like, oh, it sounds really good. They believe in God, but, but no. Because they're missing out on a whole bunch of things. At church, we exist to make it all the people seeing Jesus. Jesus is a central part of the Trinity. And so we can't look at other faiths that do not believe in the Trinity and go, that's eh, pretty close, kind of a big difference. And then beyond that, just to really make sure we're extra clear, Islam scriptures, the Quran actually condemns Jesus worshipers to hell. So can Islam lead you to faith in God? No. Now, it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to even know that. Even as I was studying, I'm like, I didn't know that it was so clear. If you believe in Jesus, people in Islam, Muslim people would believe that you are going to hell if you, put your, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you worship Jesus. So can both Islam and Christianity lead you to the same place? No. And not according to Christianity only, also according to Islam. Okay, what about some of the other faiths? What about Buddhism, where nirvana is the goal? They don't believe in one God, they believe in many gods. Buddhism has many gods and also the idea that God is found within yourself. Or Hinduism that believes in many gods. Now why, why am I even saying any of this? It's important for us to, to understand that Orthodox Christian view of God is incompatible with Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And so the idea is we all worship God in our own different ways and all religions serve the, God, the same God cannot be true because we don't. In no way do we serve the same God. And it goes so much further because at Collective Church, we say we exist to make it all about people seeing Jesus. This is the reminder and constantly we have to put our eyes on it that Jesus is the very center of our faith. That Jesus stands in the very middle of everything. And as a church, just in case you're not sure, and as leaders, we believe that Jesus' words are not optional. That when we see Jesus' words, we see very clearly who he was, and we don't get to just pick and choose what he says. And the challenge is that Jesus' words stand in opposition to the concepts of post-truth. And so we have these illusions, like, you know what, in 2023, we're just really becoming more and more advanced. No. The idea of pluralism, where people believed in all sorts of things and everything just kind of ended up in the same direction, has been around since the very beginning. That is not what Jesus claimed 
to offer. And it's important that you understand one of the big ideas here that all faiths can't be true while Jesus is also true. It's either or. Either Jesus is true or not. We don't get to, we don't get to just go, well, he's kind of true, but also, no, he's either true or he is not. Now, what about things like progressive Christianity? Maybe you've heard of that, the idea of progressive Christianity. And in my notes, I have, a, I have quote, or hype, no, what's the, these? Quotes, quotations. I have quotations around Christianity because, because progressive people that would call themselves progressive Christians, when I was looking up their, their beliefs, one of them is that they say they would believe that Jesus can be a way to God. So pretty hard to call yourself Christians and say Jesus is a potential way to God. And part of that is because Jesus himself leaves no room for interpretation. Either our, G, or either our faith is built on Jesus or not. Now again, let's look at Jesus' specific words because it's important for us. It's important for us to go, okay, what does Jesus say? Because sometimes we can create these things in our head where we're like, okay, it must mean this and this and this, and then we read Jesus' words, and you go, you know what? It seems really clear to me. John 14, 1 says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. This is Jesus speaking. Trust in God and also trust, trust also in me. But then in John 14, 6, we see some of the most significant words of Jesus that become, I think, one of the center points of our faith as Christians. It says this, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, notice this. In, in contrast to this idea that all other faiths lead to God, what is Jesus saying? He is saying, I am the way to the Father. The way. The only way. No one can come to the Father unless through me. There's no gray here. There's no, well, you know, he leaves some room. No, it's very, very, very clear. There's no room for all paths lead to God. Jesus is not giving us a lot of latitude. Instead, he is saying the only way to come to God is through him. He is the way, not a way. He is the truth, not a truth. He is the life, not a way of life. Not an option. Now, I'm willing to acknowledge that some of us may wrestle with Jesus' claims, that there can be things that Jesus says, we go, I don't know how to feel about that. And if that's you, I'm glad that you're here. But I want to let you know I am unwilling to try to, to, try to twist Jesus' words to say something that he did not, just to make me or anyone else feel better. I'm unwilling to look at Jesus' words and go, well, you know what, I'll just ignore that part of what he says. Instead, I want us to see Jesus completely. And Jesus does not say something that, he, that we might want him to say culturally. He says something that is very, very clear. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. And Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, captures this moment in Acts that I think is really helpful. Peter and John, who are two of the disciples, two of the, the guys that followed Jesus the most closely, they were standing in front of religious leaders. 
Now, this is Peter and John. Peter is the guy who denied Jesus three times, pretty impetuous, did some things. But at the end, he, he bailed on Jesus. And after Jesus had rose from the dead and gone up to heaven, we find him standing, if you find Peter and John standing in front of religious leaders, and it's getting tense. In Acts 4, verse 11, it says this, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures. Now, the, this is Peter and John speaking to the religious leaders that knew, that knew the Torah, the Old Testament, backwards and frontwards, that were very, very intelligent. And he's saying, Jesus is the one referred to in those scriptures, where it says, the stones that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation comes from no one else. Salvation comes from Jesus. So again, pretty clear here. And so you have Jesus' words, and then you have his disciples and his followers in, in Acts where they're saying it. And this reminder that we cannot claim to follow Jesus unless we actually follow Jesus. Jesus does not create space for alternative ways of life. It is his way or our way. In 1 John, 1 John 2, 23, it says, anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Because there are people that go, you know what, I'm good with God. I don't know about Jesus or this whole Christian thing. Okay, well, John's saying anyone who denies the son doesn't have the father either. You go, shoot, doesn't give a ton of room here. But the reminder is anyone who acknowledges the son has the father also. Now, I do want you to know that Jesus does stand in opposition to the idea of universalism, where everyone will eventually somehow just be saved as, as long as they stick around long enough, and ultimately they'll end up in relationship with God, because we don't find that. We either choose to follow and surrender him or not. He stands in oppositions, in opposition of other faiths. And he stands in opposition of what I was talking about earlier that's called progressive Christianity. The idea of progressive Christianity also calls into question one of the central elements of our faith, one that we celebrated last week, our whole faith orbits around this, the full bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the reminder for us is that salvation comes from Jesus, Jesus who died for our sins and conquered the grip that death and sin had on us. And Paul writes this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. So Paul was, at one point, he would, he would persecute the church came face to face with Jesus and then planted many, many, many churches. And much of the New Testament is written, there are letters to churches that he wrote. So in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And on the subject of resurrection and Jesus' resurrection, he says this, I passed on to you what was, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. 
just to give you a really quick snapshot, if you look at the Bible, before Jesus' resurrection, the disciples, his closest followers, the one that he had invested the most time in, they were a mess. They were a mess. Some of them bailed on Jesus. Some of them were gone. Some of them were like, well, I guess we're done. They were complete mess. They bickered over things like, who's going to be first? Who's the greatest? Like, totally missing the point. Peter's denying, chopping guys' ears off. Like, it's not good. And so we find the disciples in this scenario where they, you look at them and you're like, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities. And yet, if you recall even what I read in Acts, then you have people like Peter and John standing in front of the religious leaders and are saying, listen, if you have to kill us, do it, because we will not deny Jesus. How do you go from that to that? How do you go from this place where you're like, you know what, I've denied Jesus three times, I'm out, to going, I'd rather be murdered for my faith than deny Jesus? What explains that change? See, most of the disciples died as martyrs. Many of the early Christians died as martyrs. They died for their faith. What explains that change? Is Jesus said that he would die and raise again, raise from the dead, and then he did it. And he didn't just do it in the secret. He showed up to, Paul says, over 500 people. Now, I've heard it said, and I think it's helpful to understand. Have you, have you ever played that game of telephone where you say one thing to one person and hope that at the end they all say the same thing? Can you imagine how difficult it would be to get 500 people to tell the same story? He rose from the dead. Yeah, keep practicing that. Unless it was true. Because over 500 people saw him. And then what I love that Peter, or that 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 Paul is talking about, he's saying, most of them are still alive. Like, if you're wondering, did it happen? You could go talk to Julian over on the street and go, hey, you saw him, right? It's like, yeah, I saw him. He's alive. The resurrection gives us context for what we see because the church, it was so difficult to follow Jesus. After Jesus went and he ascended into heaven, if you followed Jesus at that time, it was close to a death sentence. You could be pulled out of your house, you could be killed for your faith, and yet thousands and then eventually millions and billions of people came to faith as a result of that. Why? Because Jesus said he would conquer death, and then he did it. The resurrection is so important for us to understand, and it's so important as a central part of our faith. Resurrection was not an idea, a concept that sounds good. It's just, you know, it's metaphorical resurrection. We're just, you know, raised from the dead of the death in our lives. No, no, no. This was full bodily. This was an event that split history, changed everything. It was an event that was witnessed by hundreds who told hundreds who told others because it was true. It's important for us to understand that. And so as a result of this, because the resurrection was true, we have, we have countless Christians that were willing to give their life rather than deny Jesus. And just as an aside, if you're ever curious can the resurrection be proved? There is a ton, a ton of historical, secular, so non-Christian research 
that can't necessarily explain it, but knows that he was dead and that he was alive again, that the resurrection is one thing that is verified historically. And so there's all sorts of ideas, like, well, maybe he just was you know, beaten half to death by himself in a cave, and he just kind of fainted for three full days. Or he was dead and came back to life. I mean, if you actually look at some of the the theories of, well, maybe this would have happened. None of them are compelling. And, And so it's important for us to understand this is not just something we know to be true because of the Bible. This is something we know to be true because of history. And the challenge is that if we're not careful, we can treat that as something we celebrate on Easter and be formed by that in moments, but not formed by that in all of our lives. We can be formed by the lies that we believe rather than the truth of Jesus. The risk is that we exchange the truth for a lie. Paul is speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, about this. And I think it's pertinent for us today. In in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, it says this, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. It is so important that we do not try to reduce the message of Jesus, the good news. The word gospel means good news. So we don't want to reduce the gospel to some version that we've hodgepodge together in 2023. The good news of Jesus is the same that, that ignited a movement in, in 2,000 years ago in Rome where, where Christians came to faith at, the, at, at great personal cost. You know what's so amazing, even when you look at the Romans? Because, because Jesus actually rose from the dead, they could not keep up with the growth of Christianity. To the point, Christians were doing such a good job that there were, no, there were no, almost no babies without homes. They were people that were cared for. Christians would let people into their homes that were sick. To the point that the Roman Empire is like, they're doing too much good. Like, like we don't look good. We look bad right now. And so they're like, we need some more social programs. We need to to take care of things. And they just couldn't keep up. And they're like, we need people to volunteer and help. And no one wanted to. And yet Christians were willingly giving their life for other people. This is what we see in contrast. And it's the same today. We're, We're invited to live these kind of lives that look so different that the world takes notice. And I do not want us to settle for some sort of good news version that isn't that. Like, I love that Paul's even talking to Timothy and said, don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. We must not settle for a version of the good news or good life that does not represent Jesus. We cannot become shaped and formed by our culture to the point that we're trying to sell Jesus as a way of making people feel better or doing it in a way that maybe softens some of the the rough edges. The message of Jesus has not changed and will not change, and it still is changing people's lives. There is only one way, and his name is Jesus. And I get it. 
I get that exclusivity is hard because if we're saying, okay, there's only one way to Jesus, then we go, well, what about all the other people? It's hard for us because we do want everyone to experience salvation. And we certainly don't want to decide who's in or who is out. But the truth is, we don't decide. God does. We're not deciding who's in or who is out. God is setting that for us. And all we're doing is we're coming under that and saying, God, I I need you to be the one that guides everything. God is saying, Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way. Here's the reminder. God makes a way for everyone. But he gives people a choice. It would be incredibly unloving for God to say, you can find life through me, and people go, I don't want to, and he goes, too bad. He gives people a choice. He says, you can follow my way or your way. You can surrender to me and find life and life to the full, or he gives an option. He's not gonna force anyone to be restored into a relationship with God that they don't want. I mean, you think about the idea of heaven. The idea of heaven is that we are with God all of the time. If someone does not want that here on earth, why would they want that for eternity? He gives a choice. And rather than lamenting this perceived exclusivity, we instead as Christians are invited to tell everyone that we know about the truth of Jesus. But that's getting a little bit ahead of things. Because next week we're going to talk about is evangelism forcing my beliefs on other people. Nadia is going to be here and she's going to talk about it because there is a significant and growing portion of Christians that actually believe that evangelism is wrong. And so what do we do with this? I want us to understand that one of the profound realities of, of Christianity is that there's something different than the other faiths. Most other faiths If you imagine the ultimate goal being the the top of the mountain, most other faiths, you need to work and go up to God, go up to Allah, go up to the gods, and get to some place that will somehow be, they'll satisfy your desires. The upside-down nature of the way of Jesus is that God came to earth as a man, fully God, fully man. God came down the mountain to us. And some of us, the struggle is we've been trying to just work ourselves back up to the top of the mountain, even though God's going, no, 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 I came to you. This is a central part of what we believe as Christians, and it's so important for us to understand that salvation is a gift from God, not one that we earn by somehow doing enough. But when we are saved as Jesus followers, it does change how we live. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Maybe there's some people in the room right now and you go, you know what, I've never actually surrendered my life to Jesus. And I'm hearing this and I didn't know about the differences and I I didn't understand. And I want to just let you know that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life without sin. All of us are sinners. And the challenge is that our sin separates us from God. But Jesus lived a perfect life, the kind of life that we could never live. And then he went on that cross dying as a, as a perfect and holy sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. 
But it wasn't just enough that he just died on the cross. He rose again, conquered the grip that death had on us, that sin had on, had on us, and it, he restored a, a relationship with God, the one that we'll spend our whole life looking for. And if we'll simply surrender to him, declare that he is Lord, believe that he rose from the dead, we will find salvation, everything that we are looking for. And if that's you, we'd love to talk with you. If you're saying, I wanna follow Jesus, fill out a connect card or, or talk to someone with a lanyard or talk to Lee and I and let us know. We'd love to walk with you. There's also some people in the room that, that you've done the whole Jesus plus some other things. Like you've gone, he's the way, kind of, a way. And so I'm gonna add Jesus plus some other things and I'm gonna make it in my own image. And as I've invited in previous weeks, I wanna invite you to turn away from that. To instead go, I want you, Jesus, only you. I want all of you in every area. One of the things that I think is incredibly helpful for us is to rediscover communal Bible study. Here's what happens, is we hear things and then we believe them and then we don't check, where's that coming from? So if we're taking something like, something that the fool in Hamlet says and creating whole movements around it, isn't it important for us then to look at the Bible and go, does it say that? Here's the challenge with, with reading your Bible. If you're not super familiar, first you can get lost in it. You start at the beginning like you're supposed to with a book and then you get in part way and you're like, I, I have no clue what to read. But the other part is that sometimes there are, there's a real value in us learning from others. And so for us to read our Bibles, we talk about, if you've, if you've ever been around churches in general, our personal relationship with God, and that is important. But what we've lost is the communal relationship with God. That is where we get together and we go, what does it say? What do I do with this? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. What does that mean for my life? What is he asking me to do? And we need to do that together. I would highly recommend, if you're reading a Bible, to also get some commentaries or get a study Bible. So you're not just reading it by yourself going, hopefully I figure this out. Because here's one of the challenges that we have. We read everything through our filter and lens of Christians in 2023. And so we look at the Bible and we go, well, it says this and that and this and that. And we miss all the nuance and beauty. Here's the beautiful part about those of us that have followed Jesus. We have thousands of years of scholars and beautifully educated people that have unpacked and restored truth. And so we are able to look at all of these witnesses along the way and go, what can I learn? And how is it that you need to reframe how I see this book? Is it possible? And I would say probable that some of our views from Jesus are not built from the Bible, but built from our experience of who Jesus we think he should be. And so my encouragement would be if you're not in a co-group, our our co-groups meet through the week It's a way of creating a smaller environments of what's happening in this room. If you're not in a co-group, join a co-group. Because that gives a really valuable place for you to wrestle through some of it. Even this week, as I was writing some of the 
the guy, there's, there's one passage I didn't even get a chance to get to that I want to have people have a little bit of time working through. It's important. We value each other. And so you're reading something going, what does that mean? And what do I do with this? And what is the truth here? If you are not regularly reading your Bible, start. And I'm not suggesting it's one of those things where you're like, if you miss a day or if you're not every day three hours reading 17 chapters, that somehow you're a bad Christian. But I want you to think about inputs. We have thousands of messages all the time trying to get our attention and shape us. If there's all these things that are coming into our minds shaping us, I need to buy more, then I'll be better. I need to do this, and then I'll be good enough. And we're not actively going back to God's words and saying, shape me and form me again to you. Then what chance do we have? Look more and more like Jesus. So do that. Read, spend time reading your Bible. If you need recommendations, we can absolutely give them. But, but investigate Scripture. You could even investigate it with, with skepticism. What's really amazing is that many people that look at the Bible with skepticism over time find themselves deeply drawn toward Jesus. So start there, but don't just do it by yourself either. Join a co-group. Read together. Find someone that has been around longer, that has learned some things, that is willing to walk with you as you do it. Read some great books. If you've been around me for any length of time, I have no shortage of recommendations. There's some really, really, really helpful books. I'm gonna recommend a few through this series, but take your growth into your hands. Choose this week to be more formed and shaped by Jesus than by the world. Choose to live your life differently. 